the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Robert Thurman, is a scholar and interpreter of Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. In his new book, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life, he offers an exploration into the nature of reality through Buddhist threefold curriculum of supereducation. He invites us to travel the same road as the Buddha. Robert became a Tibetan monk at age 24. He was the first American to be ordained by the Dalai Lama. He is a translator of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the author of Inner Revolution. Robert is co-founder of Tibet House U.S. and is one of the most visible and respected Buddhist scholars and thinkers in the world. Welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Joan. It's very nice of you to have me on. So, Robert, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Buddhism, can you briefly give us a basic understanding of what it is and its foundational beliefs? Well, uh, I think the foundational belief is openness of mind rather than fastening on a particular slogan or credo, you know, proposition and holding that as the essence of of what you do. In fact, uh, in, in the case of Buddha, the idea is his recommendation to people was that they observe nature and reality and observe themselves, actually. And that if they did and look very carefully at things, they would discover that everything is really well organized and beautifully uh, present to their life. And that, they are, and that the ultimate sort of level of life and death, actually, is really very good. And they have a wonderful opportunity as a human being to really find permanent joy and happiness and pleasure without leaving life, actually. And in fact, what you might call an infinite life. And uh, But he says believing in that is a good thing in the sense that it kind of encourages you to move forward. But the belief by itself is not enough. You have to experience it. And to do that, you have to observe things and investigate them very carefully, including yourself. That's sort of the basic thing. So in a way, it doesn't really fit our modern definition of religion in the sense that being a member of a certain group or holding a certain belief is enough. It's, a, it's a, actually the purpose of our life is to discover and really experience what's really going on and get away from some sort of illusory preoccupations that cultures enforce upon us, so to speak. You know? So that was, his great, that was the great kind of revolution that he, uh, he um, implemented in his day and that's why it still goes on in the world. And the way I like to see it, I see the other religious teachers, the founders, as having been really in the same ballpark, really urging people to, you know, be loving, to enjoy things and make others happy and be altruistic and so on. And then, then when it gets organized as a membership community and, a, quote unquote, a religious belief, they then get tend to be only focused on a certain group, their own inner group, and they feel the membership of that group is enough. And so that's, that's where I think the organization, and that includes some Buddhist organizations, they get away from the founding, really, uh, uh, momentum of the, 
of the great teachers. Well, and, and I think you just hit a, upon a, a major misconception because I think a lot of people believe that if they practice a particular religion, that they cannot incorporate Buddhist philosophies into their life. Right. That's right. They are used, we are used to sort of depending on others. And so the idea is that they can then depend on, you know, Buddha or Krishna or Jesus or someone, and they will take care of the difficulties of life. And rather than seeing themselves as having that responsibility, and that those teachers showed a way through which we can exercise and we can educate ourselves, and then we will ourselves become able to sort of save ourselves, so to speak, uh, by in, in relationship, of course, to others, but not depending on them to save us. And so since we're accustomed, though, as children to depending on our parents and so on, it's natural that we would then turn religions into something that they can do the job for us. And then we become very attached to them. And then also we think that those who don't belong to the same one, something wrong with them. And that's very unfortunate. You know? So my, my, my message in the book is that wisdom is bliss, you know, that you... When you know what you are, and when you know, and, and not just know it as a theory, but know it by experience, and develop confidence in what you are, then you will be blissful, you will be happy. So the, we have that slogan, right? Right, Joan? We say, ignorance is bliss. Right. Because and unfortunately, that's what most people practice. <laughs> I know, I know. Cause, well, that's also because they've been convinced by political authorities in all through thousands of years, cultural authorities. And it's often spiritual authorities who often collude with the political authorities. And um, they've been convinced that reality is scary, it's bad, it's dangerous, everything goes wrong all the time. And so they therefore would rather not know, so they would rather live in denial and feel that that'll be okay and they'll somehow get out of having to face reality. Whereas if they get the original openness of mind-like idea and they, they observe in detail, the lives of the great teachers of the religion, then they will realize that they have the ability to understand, and they did understand, and they set an example, and then the people who have observed them well, they will live like them, and they will be happy. You wrote, be the student with a beginner's mind, no matter how versed you may be in something, there's always something more to understand. And I really wish more people followed this advice because you've spent five minutes on social media just to see that everyone is an expert and knows everything that there is to know about everything. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by living life that way. Well, right. Although it is good to learn from everyone else. Actually, the great um, teachers of humanity were always learning. You know, for example, take Jesus. He was always speaking in parables, people notice. And that's because he was noticing things around him, like the flowers in the field, like the weather, like the plants, like the, how the people were behaving. So that means that although he was the, the model and the ideal of a compassionate, kind, and self, self-transcending person, uh, he was also learning by, by, by being not obsessed with himself, but looking around him and observing others and listening to them. So if everybody knows everything, well, that's great. Well, let's find out what they have to say. <laughs> Right. If someone is really confused inside, in fact, if we observe them carefully, we'll come to notice it. And if we let them, however, have their say, they themselves will sometimes realize maybe they're a little off balance, you know. Does peace come from having this openness of mind that you described? I think so. It really does. And, um, you know, because you're not defending. You know how some people will say, well, my wife will say sometimes, are actually, who's one of my teachers, one of my main teachers. And she would say, well, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Right. <laughs> and so, and people, and I think that's a very good saying because sometimes, you know, you get like, your point of view is the only one, you know, and therefore, and you would want to impose that on everybody else. And when they resist you, you get frustrated or even angry. And then um, the point is that if you are willing to sort of be open, well, maybe I'm a little bit, maybe I'm not, I don't have the whole picture. You try to see the bigger picture in situations by being open-minded, listen to what the other people have to say, then then you will be more at ease, actually, more relaxed, because you're, you know, you're like flowing with the river. You're not holding up some sort of an obstruction to the flow, you know. So you can sort of more fit in with life. And, you know, we humans are very, very other-oriented. 
you know, we when 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 other people are happy and and love us because we are nice to them and so on, then we feel good when we get good feedback from them. When we are harsh with people and they be harsh back, we feel terrible. So, so we're very interactive, really, for people, you know, as animals, you know. And um, among the animal kingdom, we're almost the most altruistic. That's why we have language because we can listen to others, you know, and they can take they can share their mind and their outlook with us. And that's a great blessing that we have, you know. On the other hand, you know, one thing that Buddha noticed, and also Jesus, and also the great Indian, other Indian teachers in Chinese, was that uh, they noticed that if we if we insist on being very self-centered, and and always hold, upholding ourselves as the main thing in the world, we will usually be frustrated and we will suffer. You know, so that's one reason people have misunderstood Buddhism very, very much, because Buddha said. His first friendly fact was, well, don't worry if you're frustrated and you have a lot of stress and you suffer if you don't know who you are and where you are and what your life is. And you're afraid of many things that you don't need to be afraid of. And you're not afraid of some things that actually you should be cautious about. And so, you know, like Socrates, he said, if you don't examine life, then, well, Socrates was more pessimistic than Buddha. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And Buddha never said that. Especially human life is very worth living always as much as possible because it's such a, a wonderful intelligence that we have. And we're so op- we are naturally so open-minded compared to other forms of animal life, hum- of, of living beings, you know. So the thing is, we shouldn't be upset. It's still a friendly fact, you know, that, that You'll be stressed out if you think you're the only one of importance in the world. And that's a, that's a friendly fact because then it gives you the motive to be less self-centered, to pay more attention to others. And when you do that, you inevitably become happy, happier. You know, I, I think this book is just so timely because you talk about getting away from being self-centered and so much of what I'm seeing out there today is about people being self-centered. And, and if we go down that path and we continue in that direction, I really am afraid for our future generations of, of what we will be like as humans. So I think this Absolutely. messaging is really so important. Right. Well, we're, well you know, the, a lot of people in our leadership who are really fairly unhappy people, actually, I think it's kind of a rule of life that the person who speaks power over others is often someone who is not happy in themselves. So they think that by dominating others, they're going to get happy. But then actually, when they dominate others, others resent them and send them bad feedback. Right. And they get more, and it makes it worse. So it's actually the opposite method. They're, they're engaged in the wrong method. But unfortunately, because of that, a lot of people who have power in our society, sort of you know, supposed leaders, they tend to be very, very insecure and therefore very self-centered. You know, with the polarization in our society that you mentioned, you know, where there's the people on the right and the left, and they're so rigidly ready to do violence practically to each other. And the thing is that let them all keep their views is the idea. Don't argue with anybody. But the thing is this, object to them being angry about their views. You don't want to be too unhappy all day long yourself personally. So therefore, try not to be angry with people who are caught in whatever you think they're caught in. Just love them, want the meaning, want them to be happy. And if they're happily holding whatever idea they have, they won't be so harsh in trying to inflict it on others. And then we can come back together and have discussions and maybe everyone will see a bigger picture than whatever their theory is. So I, I just think that it's essential, and I really want to get that. I'm really not selling Buddhism. I don't want anybody to convert to Buddhism, but I just want everyone to, whatever they do, whatever they hold on to, try to do it more happily, and don't feel that they won't be happy until they've destroyed somebody else. And because that's what sort of makes them um, uncomfortable, and that's what makes it impossible to meet other people, you know. And I think we will succeed, by the way, Joan. Mm -hmm. I'm very optimistic. I do think that that everyone will kind of cheer up and calm down uh, as as time goes on, because we sort of have to, you know, because you can't really do something even about a bad situation if you let it make you completely miserable. When you're really miserable, you have much less energy and much less skill in dealing with difficulties, you know. When you feel kind of happy, a little dingy, you know, you have a zest and enthusiasm, 
because you feel a little bit happy, then you really can work on difficulties much better. So we're each responsible for our own inner peace and our own happiness. Is there an exercise that you would recommend we practice each day? Yes. Counting your blessings. Seeing the glass half full. And so and so that means that, you know, try to it's like it's like a mom, you know. And mom is checking out at the counter in the in the grocery store and she has her little four year old with her who's just running around is nearby. And at the checkout counter they have all candy uh, the marketers put the candy, <laughs> you know. So then the kid wants some heavy-duty candy, or to grab a fistful of it. And the, and then mom says no, because too much sugar is not good. And she's she's trying to pay the bill and and pack the bags, you know. And then he has a tantrum. So the good mom who doesn't let it get to her and just get mad because he's having a tantrum and embarrassed and completely freaked out. The good one figures out a way to distract the kid from the candy about we're going to go see Uncle Joe or we're going to go to the playground or we're going to go home, or you know, whatever it is. She doesn't just go straight into, you know, having a tantrum herself because the kid is having a tantrum. She keeps her good cheer and she distracts the little guy from his wish to grab that, that candy. And uh, every mom who is in a good mood has that skill. And actually, you know, everybody knows this. But when you feel good, you can manage difficulties. And, and they never, they don't get to you because your happiness is so strong. The whole secret of the British Empire was have a cup of tea when you're about to freak out, you know. So I think that's the, the message is to find joy in little things. Uh, don't let yourself develop a very strong sense of discomfort, mental discomfort, by seeing something that you think is wrong or not seeing something that you think is good being obstructed by something, and just act to deal with these problems without losing your good cheer. And science tells us if you're in a good mood, you're being more healthy. So it's just common sense in a way. It isn't really Buddhism what I'm talking about. It's just common sense and having more faith in your own common sense. And your own common sense would make you cheery in whatever happens to you. So then, Joan, you interview a lot of people who do who have some sort of hope and express some sort of useful methods for people. And what what has the, how does it fit with your mind? We have to do the work. You, you know, it's it's a decision to say I'm not going to spend my days scrolling social media, getting engaged in the news, fighting with everyone I meet. And that's why I like what you're saying about don't engage with that. It, it, we have control over how we react to everything around us. And that's probably the most important lesson that I've learned in doing this for 11 years. It's that I can control my life. You know, I can't control what everyone else does. I can listen. I can control my response to it and how I allow it to impact me. And that's pretty much how I try to live my life now. Everything you've been talking about today. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy. I really am. And I really want. I really hope people will will think of that, and they don't think that it's just oh, so, oh, Buddhism and Buddhism is some weird thing that I don't do. In fact, I was just thinking you were making me think that when I left uh, my Harvard uh, many years ago, when I was twenty years old, seeking some more things. What I was looking for was some sort of teaching. What I what I called. I remember saying at the time, I was looking for a yoga about my own emotions. You know, how to handle them. You know, I knew a little bit already about physical yoga, about handling the body and keeping it limber and loose and healthy and so on. And uh, I knew some stuff about, about uh, you know, theories of, of scientific theories, et cetera, and philosophical theories. But I didn't, and I knew about psychiatry, but I didn't feel that psychiatry knew, the psychiatrist knew very well how to handle your own emotions. And but not just suppress them or or take some 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 tranquilizer or something to to modify them, but how to handle the energy of them that yourself and turn them whenever those emotional energies turn negative for you or for anyone else, how to shape that turn that same kind of energy but turn it positive, you know. And uh, and so I went to India looking for that. I wasn't really looking for a different religion, some new thing to believe. I was looking for a method. I was looking to expand my education 
And that's why you mentioned in the beginning, introducing the book, that I was teaching the three super educations, the education of ethics, the education of the mind, how, how to deal with the emotional elements of the mind and the intellectual ones as well, and then the education of the wisdom toward understanding what reality is of the self and of others. And, uh, and that's what, and therefore, you know, although I was a monk at first, because in the Buddhist culture, by being a monk, that's how you get a scholarship. <laughs> in other words, once you become a monk, then people will, will give you a free lunch, and then you can study all day, and you don't pay taxes, and you don't have to go to the army, and you don't have to whatever. You can just take care of, uh, you can study and study and develop and develop and, and, and learn how to manage things and how to be happy. And, uh, but then I, there is no such culture for me because the world is the way it is and the communists destroyed Tibet and so on. So it's a written culture pretty much up till now, although we're trying to keep some aspects of it alive at Tibet House. But the point is, I then resigned as a monk, so I decided to become a professor and an educator. So really, I'm just teaching in my book and all my books. I have been kind of teaching an expansion of our education, you know. And that's my that's my whole sort of uh, mission, you could say. It's not to develop religion in any way. It's to develop, uh, although even people who have religions should re, should try to adopt methods to educate themselves. You know, like one thing, for example, the Dalai Lama thinks that Buddhist monks and nuns are not as good as Christian monks and nuns in doing things like starting schools, uh, developing hospitals. You're doing sort of charity things, you know. They more they spend the whole time meditating, kind of, and doing that. So he wants he sends them to Christian monasteries everywhere to learn, and to Christian institutions around the world to learn how to help people. So he he thinks it's fine to learn from Christianity things that they do well without having to change from being a Buddhist. And so he encourages people. He says, if you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Hindu. Please stay with whatever grandma's religion was yourself, but by all means learn from every other religion. And that way, we won't have interreligious conflict in the world, and we will appreciate that every one of the spiritual institutions that humans have developed is trying to better the human condition and the society and the planet and the life of the individual. The book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. If you'd like to get more information about Bob and his work, you can visit bobtherman.com. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that you were here to share all of this with us. Well, thank you, Joan. I'm very happy to have been with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss managing emotional triggers. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Joan. I'm so happy to be here today. So, Odette, what are emotional triggers and why do you believe we have them? An emotional trigger is when something takes place in the present moment 
that elicits a specific emotional reaction from us, such as feeling hurt, fear, rejection, panic, or anxiety. The emotional reaction occurs because our subconscious minds and our bodies associate what is happening now with a memory of a situation that may have occurred in the past where we felt the same emotion. Emotional triggers are usually associated with people that experience post-traumatic stress disorder. For instance, a veteran that fought in, the, in Afghanistan uh, may feel a high level of anxiety when he hears fireworks on the 4th of July. We all experience some form of maybe less extreme emotional triggers. For example, if a friend forgets to call you on your birthday, it may trigger you to feel hurt and rejected. In reality, there could be a number of reasons why your friend did not call you. Most likely, your friend did not intend to make you feel rejected, yet your reaction is to feel as if you were. The emotional reaction occurs not only because your friend did not call, it is partly because of a memory from your past, a memory that you may hardly recall. Oftentimes, these memories are stored in our subconscious minds and in our bodies. So when something happens in the present moment, in present time, our bodies and minds produce a reaction based on a memory from something that happened in the past that caused you to have this same feeling, such as maybe when you were in the third grade and you were invited to a friend's sleepover. Mm -hmm. At that time, you, you felt rejected by your friend. So fast forward to present day, another friend forgetting to call you on your birthday triggers you to once again feel rejected. So when we allow these triggers to take over, what happens when we can't manage emotions? First of all, I just want to say that it is completely normal, normal part of being a human being, to feel all sorts of emotions, both positive and negative. Feeling our emotions just means that we're human. Our emotions serve as innate tools to help us communicate and interact with one another. They help us form our perspectives of the world around us and how we experience it. They're an important part of our toolkit for navigating the world. They should not, however, be in charge of our world. When you're not able to manage your emotions, you're allowing your emotions to determine your actions and behavior. In this state, you're not actually even fully aware of your emotions because you're not taking the time to process what you're feeling, to think about how you're feeling and why you're feeling this way. You're not even aware that you're being triggered, possibly. Not being able to manage your emotions means that you're in a purely reactive state. And this most likely will lead to negative consequences, such as feeling guilty or ashamed. Being in a reactive state can really be detrimental to any relationship. So what can someone do when he or she experiences one of these triggers? The best thing to do is to think about your emotional triggers in advance. During a moment of calmness and clarity, when you're not in a currently emotionally triggered state, this way, you can come up with strategies in advance to help you regulate your emotions when they are triggered. Remember that you are justified in whatever feelings come up for you. You should not feel badly or guilty for your feelings. However, the time in between your emotional trigger and how you choose to react to it, this is where your power lies. You can choose to react with anger, yelling, hitting, or something negative, or you can choose differently. Take the time to process what you're feeling. Initially, when we get triggered, our thinking becomes clouded. We're so overwhelmed by our emotions that we're not able to think clearly. My suggestion for you when you're experiencing an emotional trigger is just take a moment, literally pause and do something to expel some of that energy. Count to 100, go for a walk, do some breathing exercises, journal, cry, um, anything that will help you calm down and release some of that energy. Once you're calm, think about what has taken place. Identify the trigger. Think about why you felt triggered. Label the emotions that came up for you. Acknowledge them. Become aware of where in your body you're feeling it. Do you feel a knot in your stomach? Are your shoulders tense? And then decide what you want to do about it from a place of calmness and clarity and not from a place of emotionally charged reaction. Another thing after you're, you've taken the time to process your emotions and once the episode has passed, you know, maybe give yourself some time, is to remember forgiveness. Work on forgiving whatever triggered you and also forgive yourself for feeling triggered and perhaps even for reacting poorly. Forgiveness goes a long way in releasing your triggers once and for all. Odette, when we practice what you teach, what will happen in our relationships? By learning how to manage your emotional triggers, you will develop the self-awareness to communicate how you are feeling and why with your partner. This allows for true intimacy and connection. You're less likely to react in a way that you will later regret. Being able to manage our emotional triggers means that we are in control. Your behaviors and, and actions become a true reflection of you rather than a reaction to a trigger cued by your partner's actions. 
managing emotional triggers ensures that your relationship remains grounded in truth, love, and a real connection. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, or if you'd like to learn more about this topic, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest, Jeffrey Antonucci, went from being a bricklayer to a published author who has launched an advocacy titled Love and Peace, A Sign for Our Times. Through this initiative, Jeffrey works to spread positive messages of love, peace, and inspiration. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. Wonderful being here. So, Jeffrey, you've launched the Love and Peace, A Sign for Our Times initiative. What is the story behind this program? Well, the inception slash conception of this idea came actually when I was writing the manuscript for what was become my published novel, Deep Within a Blueberry Sky, back in 2016, 2017. Literally, Joan, one day while typing, I had this epiphany that caused me to actually stop typing, push myself back to my desk, and start flashing the fingers on my right hand. The first configuration I flashed was the letter L, using my thumb and index finger, and realized that that represents L for loser, and immediately thought, hey, that's a bad thing. I'm changing that right here, right now, to represent L for love. Then I took that L configuration on my fingers away and flashed the good old-fashioned peace sign and immediately thought, this peace sign has been around for over 50 years, but our world isn't very peaceful, and realized that's because It's missing the love ingredient. So I added my thumb to that two-finger peace sign, giving me this three-finger configuration with the thumb, index finger, and middle finger that I say puts love first and combines the power of love, the same power that drives the entire universe with the inspiring power of peace. And right then and there, I titled this three-finger hand sign, Love and Peace, a Sign for Our Times, representing love and peace for all people and all things. So, Jeffrey, this just came out of nowhere. You were working on your book, and then you just started to have these thoughts flood your mind? Honestly, Joan, that's exactly how it happened. I was just typing. I'm into thinking about what I'm writing about, and then just out of the blue, I push myself back. I stop typing. I push myself back to my desk and I start flashing those my fingers like, like I explained. <laughs> right? You know, and it's a, it's a wonderful concept because if you think about this love and peace, I mean, who doesn't want that in their life? There you go. That's right. And you know, Joan, here's the thing too. I believe to get to the peace, we need to have love lead the way. Love has to manifest for us to achieve peace. It's like a formula, right? So in essence, because of this influx of love, I'm giving the standalone peace sign a much needed upgrade. And I infuse it with love's, what I say, megatons of compassion and goodwill to eradicate hate. And all hates dictates like discourse, turmoil, and strife. And this will lead us to a love and peace-filled world for all people and all things. I believe people are inherently good and people want to love and be loved. I mean, that's what makes us human. But when you look around at everything we as a world are experiencing collectively, 
you can feel yeah. that there's so much anger and sadness out there. Yeah. It, the love gets pushed away and, and then by extension, the peace as well. So what do you yeah. think yeah. we should all be doing to transform those negative emotions and energy to a more positive love and peace experience? Yep. Just like you're saying, see, I think we, everyone, everyone, we're all desiring to, to let's say, like, sink our teeth into this satisfying loaf of freshly baked bread, oozing with butter. But we're missing the dough. Just like you said, we're overlooking the whole love, peace aspect. It's just not there, right? So we have, like, this empty pan, and we keep waiting and hoping for the bread to just one day appear, right? We're missing the very thing, which is love, that's going to produce the very thing we all desire, just as you say, and are in such need of, which is the peace. So when all I described, Joan, about how this materialized, I knew it was something special and something that could make our world a better place. But as I said, I was writing the manuscript for Deep Within a Blueberry Sky. I had to focus on all that needed to occur to ultimately publish my novel. So I put this love and peace hand sign concept and what I say was like the side burner where it would simmer there until my novel was published in November of 2018. And when I was able to finally launch this concept, it was in the form of a blog, which was then in February of 2019. So I have a mission, visions, and values. And, and in here is where we can talk to your question about what we can do here. And this is, I, I feel this mission, vision, and values is like the roadmap or the, the directions on how we could move forward and make this world the place we all need it to be and deserve it to be. So for my advocacy, love and peace assigned for our times, the mission is to advocate for and create love-based, peaceful platforms from which we diffuse confrontations, settle our differences, restore our environment, and ultimately remove turmoil and strife from our lives and our world. The vision is to conceptualize what I refer to as a 2020 and beyond perfect vision of a love and peace-filled world for all people and all things. This concept is symbolized by an unpretentious, non-threatening, three-finger hand sign that becomes known and used universally, spreading this perfect vision concept to an imperfect world. And the values, Joan, are to engage the five loves, to willingly, kindly, and gently impart peace, honor, and respect to all humanity and all creation. The first love is to love, honor, and respect yourself. The second love is to love, honor, and respect what you do and the love you bestow. The third love is to love your time at rest, absorbing and embracing the loving world around you. You know, again, it's become where we're afraid we're not allowed to take a break, right? We need to recharge. The fourth love is to love, honor, and respect and heal Mother Earth. And the fifth love, I say, this is a biggie. Love, honor, and respect each other and celebrate our similarities and differences. We should not be even thinking of any other thing but that or doing it any other way than that. You know, Jeffrey, if, if we each practice these five loves, can you imagine the world that we would be living in, how beautiful it would be. Joan, thank you. And believe me, that's all I do is imagine that. And that's where I, I want to make this happen now. I want to take these tools, let's say, that have been given to me because I know, it, it, you know, I, maybe it's a, or it's a crazy way to say it, but it's like an ointment. We can use this ointment to heal the rash, to heal the division to heal the divisiveness. Joan, you mentioned how I was a bricklayer. You lay brick, you build a building, one brick at a time, one thought at a time, one person at a time. 
one smile at a time because those are being so overpowered, those beautiful things are being so overpowered by all the negativity. In the time that this all came about, I'm now, in addition to the advocacy, forming a nonprofit love and peace assigned for our times. And there's a mission statement specific, and it's to be recognized globally as the driving force for the spreading of love and peace by fostering charitable initiatives that greatly improve the lives of those in need, the state of our human condition, and the health of our environment. Well, Jeffrey, I am so happy that you are here with us today to share this positive, powerful message. I mean, love is the answer. And there's so much pain in the world, as, as I said, you know, be a pandemic and everything that has resulted from that political issues. I mean, there's just so much suffering taking place right now. And so if we can get back to the simple, really simple thought and action of love, you know, again, it it will change so much. So if our listeners would like to learn more about Jeffrey and this initiative or his book, Deep Within a Blueberry Sky, you can visit loveandpeace.life. Again, that's loveandpeace.life. And Jeffrey, I want to thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome here anytime you want to come back. Joan, it's been my absolute pleasure, and I thank you so very, very much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're a small business and doing your own social media, you may be wondering why you don't have more followers. You may think, don't people want to buy what I'm offering? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. We used to keep our private business private. Now we're encouraged to put ourselves out there on social media. This may be uncomfortable for some of us. I know I'm not that crazy about giving people I don't know all my personal details. This may sound funny coming from a person who makes a living on social media. But here's the thing. Social media is like a cocktail party. If you go to a party and the person who invited you doesn't do anything but try to sell you something, that is probably a party you wouldn't want to go back to. So, like a cocktail party, social media is an opportunity to have your customers get to know you and understand your passion for your business. You don't have to give them your kids' names or where you live, but you do have to tell them why your business is important to you and ultimately to them. Why did you get into this business? And most importantly, why are you different from anyone else? That gives your followers a reason to spend their money with you. If there were a few hundred people calling your business to learn more about you and hear about you, you would be thrilled. So why aren't you thrilled with a hundred or more followers on social media? Give that some thought the next time you're looking at your number of followers. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Do you suffer from ingrown toenails? Hi, I am Dr. Anand Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Ingrown toenails occur when the toenail starts to grow into the nail groove. This can cause significant pain and discomfort. They may become infected if left untreated. Wearing badly fitting shoes usually causes ingrown toenails. The pressure from the shoes that are too narrow at the top or too tight from the side can put extra pressure on the toenails. Other causes that include toenails that are not trimmed properly, such as cutting the toenails too short, or trauma to the feet due to activity including running. Having a family history of ingrown toenails can also increase a person's risk. There are several ways to treat and prevent ingrown toenails. Cutting the toenails straight across after a bath when the nails are soft. Avoid cutting the nails in a rounded pattern as it can increase the risk of inward growth. Wearing proper fitting shoes that do not have a pointy tip will prevent worsening of your ingrown toenail. If at-home care does not improve the condition, or if your toe becomes swollen, red, or painful, please visit a podiatrist who can provide the proper care, or even antibiotics. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. 
and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today to talk about preparing for an upcoming surgery is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Joan. So, Lori, surgery is a big deal. Before anyone agrees to having surgery, what should be considered? Well, first, Joan, they should be aware of the details of the surgery, what the benefits and risks are, and what would happen if they didn't have the surgery. You know, ask your surgeon if you were to have the surgery, how long does the benefit last? You know, people don't always ask that question, but you could have a surgery and maybe it's going to last two years, but that's important information to know. Find out if there are different techniques for the surgery and why your surgeon does it the way he or she does over another. Also ask if there are alternatives to surgery, such as medical or non-surgical alternatives, or could a watchful waiting procedure be the option? You know, they should find out how many of these types of surgeries the surgeon does each year and compare it to other surgeons, especially at those at big centers for excellence. You know, do you want to have a doc that does 20 surgeries a year or 150? Uh, also, you should do research on the surgeon's outcomes. There's a lot of websites that you can check out to see what their outcomes are, their complication rates, and also check on the hospital's complication infection rates. This can be important as well. It can matter greatly where you have the surgery as well as the surgeon performing it. So it's worth doing this research. Find out what type of anesthesia you're going to be given and who the anesthesiologist is and what their credentials are. I usually like to recommend they ask to see and meet this physician before surgery. They don't always have the option, but you need to ask. Also ask, very important, what is the recovery like? How long will you be in the hospital? Will you need to go to a rehab facility before going home? Is any special equipment needed after surgery or home care assistance? It's equally important to ask the cost of the surgery. Make sure the surgeon, hospital, anesthesiologist, and any other specialist involved are in your insurance network. If you don't, you could be hit with some serious bills. So a lot of research to be done, but um, most times we have enough ample time to do this research. Just don't always stop at the first one. So whenever surgery is suggested, is it a good idea to get a second opinion? Definitely, Joan. A second opinion can be so useful. And Nowadays, many insurance companies require it because we all realize that more information means better decision making. And getting a, I usually recommend getting a center, um, getting second opinion at a center of excellence where they actually see more cases, they might have more experience. It's just more information in your bucket to make a decision with because the more information you have, the better decision you can make. Sometimes, actually, a third opinion may be needed for complex situations, Joan. So, Lori, if it's determined that surgery is the best course of treatment, how does someone prepare for an upcoming surgery? I stress that it's important not only to be prepared physically, but also mentally for an upcoming surgery. You really need to follow any of the preoperative instructions the surgeon and the medical team provide you, but you can do more for yourself. You can eat plenty of protein to promote wound healing and boost your immune system. Eat a high-fiber diet of fruits and vegetables to keep your GI system healthy when you're not moving as much after surgery. Avoid sugar and processed foods. Increase your physical activity ahead of time so you really are in pretty good physical stamina, have good physical stamina before you um, go to surgery. Lose any extra weight you might have. Get lots of sleep. Discuss any fears or anxieties you have with a friend. It's important to mentally be prepared. I will add that this one is a big one people don't always think of, but envision and focus on your positive outcome you want to get from your body and how it will heal well after the surgery. And lastly, I would say that we always put together with our clients, and I recommend everybody have what we call a hospital toolkit bag, almost like a grab-and-go bag. In that bag, you have a list of your medications with the doses, how often you take it, any supplements you take, list your medical conditions, any kind of past surgeries you have, insurance cards or copies of your advanced directive, healthcare proxy document, pulse, power of attorney, name of your emergency contact person, list of your physicians, and certainly 
a notebook and pen to take notes when in the hospital. Or hopefully you have a loved one that can do that because a lot's going on in that hospital and you really do need to take some notes. So there's other things like cell phone and charger, but you know, there's a lot to get prepared, but everybody can do it with this guidance and this toolkit. Lori, very quickly, is it a good idea for anyone to have a grab-and-go bag ready? Yes, Joan. In fact, even when we open up new cases where somebody may not be getting surgery, part of the intake is organizing all of this information so it's in one place. So, yes, it's not dissimilar from pregnant women when they tell months ahead of time before they're going in for their baby, for their birth, to have that bag ready to go, grab-and-go bag. Frequently, people in an emergency, you know, they're you know, they're going around, they get to the hospital, what med- medications are you on? Well, patient may not be able to talk. The other person has no idea. It could be a wife, husband, or somebody that thinks maybe they should have known them, but they don't. So this is a perfect tool to have ready to go at any point. I think it's a great idea. It's just part of our emergency readiness planning. So if you'd like to learn more about Lori, about her work, about planning for an upcoming surgery, you can visit her website, healthlinkadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.